Welcome to Military Network Radio, where we'll bring dynamic interviews and fresh information about topics affecting your quality of life at each stage of your military service. Join us each week for information of value that improves your outlook, actions, and encourages each member of the family. Serving the military, their families, and those who care about them. Everyone serves, and together we make a difference. And now, here's your host, Linda Crater. Good morning and welcome to Military Network Radio. We're very glad that you have joined us today. You know, the tagline of our show is everyone serves and together we make a difference. And we're going to tap into that today by talking about our military teens, preteens, young adults, and some of the additional stressors that they may carry. It's not just enough to be a teenager and hormones and adjusting. But when you add in the military life, the culture, the concern for a parent's career, uh, frequent relocations, making new friends, fitting in, you know, there are always new cultures, groups, and activities wherever you are PCS'd. And though there can be a wonderful way that military families adjust each time to one of these moves, it is not easy. And I don't think anyone has ever said that it is. But we're going to be talking today about some of these turbulent times, which the teenage years are for both parents and for teens and young adults, preteens. And then there's this ever-present growing drug and addiction problem across the country. And then you add to it cyberbullying, sexting, the relentless pressure on social media. And as a parent or a teen, sometimes you may feel very misunderstood or isolated or neglected. So today we're going to be talking to Judy Davis and Sandy Fowler, who are two of the three founders of Daisium, an organization that is devoted to working with families and not just military, but families who are under pressure and talking about warning signs and what to look for as parents and as teenagers, what to be able to say or raise your hand or know where to go to find help. So with that lead in, I would love to introduce both Judy Davis and Sandy Fowler to Military Network Radio. Good morning. Good morning, Linda. Good morning, Linda. Thank you so much for having us on the show today. You're so welcome. So important that this group gets neglected. I think that when people are PCSing, everyone is thinking about, okay, I have to move. I have to get a new pediatrician. I have to sign up for schools. I have to do these things. But as children and teens get a little bit older and adjust to quote military life, uh, you've heard everybody says it, you know, I'm an army brat, I'm an air force brat, I'm a military brat. Um, It's almost accepted that you this is your life too and of course it is but we look at our kids for independence Um, in fact we promote them being independent which is a good thing but sometimes that independence can work against them and I'm hoping that we can talk very openly and candidly about that today as a parent and you know all the work that you're doing with Dacium and Judy with your book I think Mm -hmm. that awareness is so very important because drug abuse, addiction, um, the isolation, the depression, um, 
this isn't a dark show at all. This is a show mm-hmm. saying we have the most amazing, resilient kids in our uh, military families. But let's take a real look today at some of the tough mm-hmm. things that they have to, to start with. So, Judy, let me start with you. Um, okay. I mentioned the two out of three founders of Dasium. Can you please talk about your son, Jeffrey, and share your story to set the stage today for what we're going to be talking about and why it's so critically important? Sure, sure. You know, being in this space, and I know Sandy, um, you know, she has her a different version of um, what went on with her daughter, but it's one of those things that, you know, while my son was the catalyst for what we're doing at Dassium and how we're making a difference in this um, space with teens and young adults, it could have been any one of our kids, and I think that's the biggest thing. Um, my son, just a quick overview, is that my son was a sophomore in college, and he had um, been just, he wasn't happy, he was struggling, but we didn't know it. On the surface, he looked like he was adjusting well to college, adjusting to dad being back from deployment, adjusting to, um, you know, being on a college campus. His grades were good. He had friends and all of that. And one day I got that call that no parent ever wants to get and that, you know, my son had attempted to take his own life. And it was such a shock to us because we had no idea that he was in such a level of crisis. And we really had no idea that he had been self-medicating with prescription meds and alcohol and thrill-seeking behaviors to deal with what he didn't have the skills to deal with in his life. So when you were talking a little bit in the intro about our military kids, you know, with the added stressors of PCS and, um, you know, just military life in general, parents being overseas or the, you know, years and years of a rapid deployment cycle, mm-hmm. our kids, what I'm seeing out there in the trenches is that they don't have the coping skills they need. They don't have the tools to help them deal with these added stressors. And I think that that in and of itself is critical. You know, you you mentioned that. So you mentioned that this is about their coping skills, which I'm absolutely in agreement on, whether civilian or military. But do you feel that it has become uh, part of the culture to helicopter parents or, or then set them free or to show that you trust them? Do you think something has changed or are we simply more aware of it? I think it's a it's almost one of each. And Sandy, I'll let you jump in here too because I know you have some different thoughts. But yeah. I think that there is some <laughs> different. Um, I think it's a little bit of both, Linda. I think that in general, things are very different from when we were growing up. As parents, we pass along the things that we do well to our children. We want them to have a better life. We want them to do and handle things better than we did. And because the culture has changed so much with the Internet and social media and um, technology, I think those those are big pieces, Mm -hmm. we don't know how to help our kids know how to deal with social media. 
we don't know how to help our kids um, with prescription drugs being so readily available. You know, back in when we were teens, it was alcohol, and your parents knew right away because when you walked in, you smelled like alcohol. <laughs> Our sons didn't right. do that. Right. Yeah, so we had no idea how that he was even in trouble to help him. And I think that there's such different stuff going on right now that as parents, we don't know what we don't know, and... Therefore, we can't give our kids what we need, so we overcompensate, and that's where that helicopter parenting comes in. We think we can control it because we are unclear of how to actually move forward. Hmm. Does that make sense? It does. (laughs) Yes, and what Judy said there, I absolutely agree with. And the way that I summarize is we have this little cycle going on. As Judy mentioned, parents, we have a lack of knowledge. There are these things that we don't know how to deal with. That creates fear. And then we deal with the fear by helicopter parenting and trying to make sure that our kids never get hurt. And then that helicopter parenting actually means that our kids don't learn a lot of those skills and things for being independent that we want them to know. Mm-hmm. And that get in turn creates more fear, more helicopter parenting, and it just feeds that cycle. And so I think, Linda, you mentioned at the beginning of the show that awareness mm-hmm. is important. And there's so many different ways that awareness can come into play in for ourselves, in our families, in our parenting. And that is one of the key things that Judy and Jeffrey and I try and do through DASIUM is just create simple awareness. Judy and Jeffrey sharing their story changed my family's life, and it was simply awareness. Mm -hmm. So that's why I'm really excited that you brought us on today to talk about this, because like you said, it doesn't have to be a dark thing. Yes, there are some dark pieces to it, and we don't want to instill fear. What we want to do is create awareness of, oh, stuff exists, but hey, I don't have to be afraid of it because there are things I can do. Right. And and that's what I really wanted to impress upon people. This is not dark. This is actually light being shown on this topic where the awareness can create the conversation and the engagement mm-hmm. and the safety and trust to be able to talk about it. Yeah, and conversation saves lives. A- absolutely right. Mm-hmm. So as you take a look at this turbulent culture, if, when you are out speaking and talking, because I know that's what you do, and we only have about a little less than two minutes, what's the most common question you get? Judy, why don't you take that one? The most, yeah, the most common question I get is, how do I know? How do I know what to look for? How do I know if my kid is in trouble? That is the thing that parents want to know. And then the second almost follow-up, is once I know, what do I do? And, you know, because there's different levels of crisis. I mean, is Uh it that your kid is just, you know, acting out a little bit, or are they in full-blown, you know, addiction? And, you know, we can talk about that in one of the next segments because our definition of addiction is very broad. It isn't just about drugs and alcohol. There's so much more to it because Uh it's an escaping and a and a coping strategy, an unhealthy coping strategy. But, you know, most of the time, parents 
want to know what to look for, how, and then what to do. And they want to know how to parent through it. I, I right. think more than anything, you know, when we're talking about parents, they want to know how to parent through whatever is going on in their child's life. Well, and of course. Hear, you know, and the question I get from the teens or young adults is, Judy, I'm so sorry to stop you, but we have a break coming up. We will continue with that answer right after these short messages. You're listening to Military Network Radio. We'll be right back. We're Military Network Radio, and we'll be right back after these short messages. It's the Fitness Minute with fitness expert, Annette Hammond. Many of us look forward to the holidays all year long. It is such a magnificent opportunity to get together with family and friends and decorate and give gifts and eat the most delicious food. But numerous people dread the holidays. As far as their weight, health, and exercise are concerned, they know they'll have so much temptation and chances to derail their healthy lifestyle. Many just resolve themselves into thinking that gaining weight over the holidays is a fact and there is no way to avoid it. But it doesn't have to be that way. I want you to embrace the holidays. Have a plan before you go to any dinner, party, or event and decide what you're going to eat and stick with it. Yes, there will be temptation, but you can overcome it. Stay with the plan and reap the benefits. You can contact us at fitnessminute at annettehammond.com. about the Gabrielunzi bear caught rummaging through a refrigerator in an apartment in Colorado? The tenant heard noises coming from the kitchen and saw a bear with his head in the fridge looking for anything it could eat. What's a word for food that's unfit for human consumption? Ma wallop. The tenant locked himself in his bedroom and called for help. What's a word for the fear of bears? Ursophobia. We have lots of bears near our Colorado cabin, and we have been told that pepper spray will keep them away. But the idea that it would keep a 500-pound grizzly bear from attacking seems ridiculous to me. I think I'll try the pepper spray in myself and hope the bear doesn't like spicy foods. It's I'm Carolyn Davidson, and you can have fun challenging your words-you-never-heard vocabulary with my free app, Too Funny for Words. Welcome back to Military Network Radio, serving the military, their families, and those who care about them. Together, we make a difference. Welcome back to Military Network Radio. We are talking with Judy Davis and Sandy Fowler of Dazium today and talking about the risks for our military teens, young adults, even preteens. So before the break, we were talking about the two questions you most often are asked when you're out. Uh, speaking and and even in your writing and blogged blogging, blog, how, the questions were. Let me rephrase this: How do I know that something's wrong? And then when I do think I have something in my mind that's wrong, what do I do? So Sandy, let's start with you this time. Um, parents want to know, but I imagine that there's a better way to go about doing this to discover an open dialogue than others. Are there some things that you would suggest as you go about observing and parenting and knowing what to do responsibly? Well, Linda, 
it, it's going to tie back into a little of what we were talking about before. So the question is, how do I know? Mm-hmm. And there are specific warning signs. One thing that we promote at Dacium is that we are looking for warning signs way up front. We don't just look for warning signs of a teen or young adult who is actually at the point of being suicidal. Mm-hmm. We look for just warning signs that there's a possibility of depression or addiction or suicide. So it's way, way up front. Mm-hmm. And there are a lot of different warning signs and they, you know, they fall into different categories. The, the physical warning signs like unusual fatigue or you know, multiple health complaints, the behavior, emotional warning signs, school things, you know, schoolwork changes, friendship. And honestly, I find it can be overwhelming, especially if you don't have a checklist in front of you. You know, in mm-hmm. our in, in the book, Judy and Jeffrey shared a checklist. But what I find that's easiest for me and seems to be helpful to parents is to say, look for changes. If something is different in your child, open that dialogue. Mm-hmm. And you brought up, you know, there are different ways of doing that. And everyone's going to have different words to use. We're not worried about the words. We want people to know that, number one, bringing up suicide, mentioning that, mentioning depression, does not open a door. The Mm -hmm. experts have said you can mention that. So don't worry about what words you're using there. The most important thing in a dialogue is to ask and then listen. Mm -hmm not try to problem solve for them. And most importantly, don't judge them. Judy, I know, you know, when I've worked with Jeffrey or listening to him speak, the judgment was a huge, huge issue. And in fact, when he spoke at the high schools and the students were asking him questions and he said, you know, there were people who came up and they knew there was something wrong and they asked him about it, but they were judging him in the way they did it. So he didn't open up to them. Mm-hmm. So as a parent, you just want to be open and be there for your child. Ask them if they're okay. Ask them what's wrong. And even if they answer you and, and you don't think it's right, it's okay. Let it go. Just keep that door open. Mm-hmm. And Sandy, you touched on something, you know, really interesting because, you know, while I didn't know that the things I was seeing in, Jeffrey were actually warning signs, I knew in my gut that things weren't okay. And it's interesting as, you know, hindsight is always twenty twenty. Mm-hmm. And as I look back on his life, there were different times when I noticed that things weren't weren't great for him. You know, he would sleep a little more, he didn't have as much joy, and only after he got into treatment did we realize that he had attempted suicide multiple times throughout his youth, even as early as age eight. Really? Yes. What we now understand, I thought he broke a light fixture with his soccer ball because that's what he told me. You know, downstairs, heard a big crash in his room, went running up. Oh, you were kicking your soccer ball in the house. No, he had attempted to hang himself. So it it was one of those things that oftentimes little behaviors are easy to dismiss as a moody teen 
or a child that didn't get their way. Mm-hmm. But if I could rewind and redo it, there were behaviors that while things changed, there were behaviors in how he was feeling as well. And, you know, it's the, the physical changes that happen in a child that's in distress are easier to see than some of the emotional changes that might happen. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. that spiral thinking or feelings of not being good enough, that's something that teens say a lot, like Sandy was touching on, that guilt and, um, you know, rehashing every mistake. Those are things that come out when you open up that dialogue. When you're truly listening, you will hear those emotional cues mm-hmm. saying, I'm not okay. And then as parents or mentors or teachers or just anybody that's in a child's life, when you hear those things, it's important that you reach out and say, wow, you know, that, that must be hard to deal with feeling that way. And then just shut your mouth and listen. Like Sandy touched on, it's not to fix because my son and every single person that I've met along his journey of recovery, and I've met so many young adults um, and, you know, teenagers that have chosen the path of recovery, they all say until they were ready, no matter what someone said to them, they wouldn't take help or tell anybody what was really going on inside. And so and the, it's and that can happen even during the process of getting help. Yeah. You know, our, our daughter, we knew there were problems. We had her go, she was in college. We had her go see the counselor at school. Later on, when she saw a therapist at home, she told me that she didn't tell the counselor at school what was going on. She didn't, she went, but she didn't open up to him. She just told him little pieces that she was willing to share. Mm-hmm. So don't, don't take it personally. Don't, don't think it's yours to fix. It goes back to that cycle of, you know, fear and helicopter parenting. You can't fix anything for them. You just mm-hmm. can be an, a support system and love them and have tools, you know, be willing to, to teach them tools. Judy just used a tool in, in her conversation that must be really hard to be feeling that way. Mm-hmm. Right there, you're teaching your child that their feelings are okay. And as you continue having dialogues and discussions about things or in just living your life, you may be able to do things like, you know, if you know they're struggling, hey, you know, I've been, I started doing yoga or I've started running or I've started swimming because it's helping me with my stress. I've noticed that you've had a lot more to deal with lately. Would you like to join me? Mm-hmm. And you know, I find, I'm, yeah. I'm sorry, I, I find that when um, you, you talk with children and teens, and if you simply, as you put it, no judging, but you listen, you don't even need to be the parent to be heard. Um, we, I recently had a friend whose son I don't know very well but who reached out by texting and I was surprised, but as long as you are there to listen and you're considered safe 
sometimes someone will talk to you versus a therapist because when they're at a therapist they know somebody thinks something is wrong with them mm-hmm. and which is why i think as adults to be receptive and aware of knowing that you don't have to have a doctorate to help you just have to have an ear you have to have an awareness and you have to open the communication channels um one of the things that was very important to me was that i am not trained in this so it was very important mm-hmm. to redirect this back to the parent and which i did and it's not easy to do because someone doesn't always want to hear it mm-hmm. what do you do in those types of cases where they've reached out to someone else but you know that they need more help than a mm-hmm. a, a friend can provide well, and, you know, and take that example and and Take it, right. take it. I think it, it becomes twofold. And, you know, there is such a stigma around mental and behavioral health issues that sometimes reaching out, you know, they're afraid to reach out. And when you're asking, you know, what do you do, it honestly depends on the age. If it were on the lower end of the spectrum, I would take them with me and talk to the parent together with mm-hmm. the child so the child knows exactly what I'm saying and here's what you know and here's that I heard them and I am here to support them because what a child in distress needs is to know that someone can help them feel better they don't need to know exactly how that's going to happen they just need that piece of hope and if you can provide that safe haven then you leave it open for them to come back to you. Mm-hmm. If they're older, then it's a little bit trickier because, you know, when you're talking about an 18, 19 to 24-year-old, you know, they're adult now, and it's truly up to them whether or not they get help. Mm-hmm. I am very blunt and frank because that's what's needed. Mm-hmm. It's, you know, I see, you know, thank you so much for coming to me. Mm-hmm. And I hear everything you're saying. I am very concerned about your emotional and behavioral health. The things you're choosing to do to feel better are dangerous. And we need to get you some help so you can feel better. You know, it's it give them that hope and let them know they're not alone, however you choose to do that. Well, extremely valuable because I think that opening a dialogue, that trust is not to be betrayed, but that trust is also, as you said, they may not have the coping skills to take it to the next step. This case went to the parent with the church counselor and all Mm -hmm. turned out fine. But, you know, that was serendipity. And um, I think, I no, I don't believe in quinces. Let me take that back. I actually believe that that was an outreach and it worked out well. But what I tell people is, please don't be scared to talk about it. It's actually more valuable to talk. We have to go on another break. I'm so sorry to cut us off. We will continue right after these short messages. We're talking to Judy Davis and Sandy Fowler today of DASIUM. We're Military Network Radio, and we'll be right back after these short messages. The League of Women Voters reminds you that on Election Day, we are all equal. 
join your friends and neighbors by registering to vote and going to the polls November 8th. Visit www.vote411.org to find out who will be on your ballot and how the voting process works in your community. This election is about our future, and we all need to weigh in. don't cry, right? According to a recent Wall Street Journal article by Dennis Nishi, there's a stigma attached to turning on the waterworks at the office. 61% of men who reported crying at work cited personal reasons, an illness in the family, the death of a pet is the catalyst. While 58% of women said it was something that happened at work, being unfairly blamed or criticized, men are like mascara. They run at the first sign of hubba-boo. That's another word for crying. What's the word for the fear of intense emotion? Zellophobia. Women may have a better excuse for crying than men, as females have higher levels of prolactin, which encourages the production of tears, making it easier to be known as a lacrimist or someone who cries at the drop of a hat. I'm Carolyn Davidson, and you can have fun challenging your words you never heard vocabulary with my free app, Too Funny for Words. Welcome back to Military Network Radio, serving the military, their families, and those who care about them. Together, we make a difference. Welcome back to Military Network Radio. I would like to bring up what I see as a common problem and see what your perspectives are on it. I still hear from a great number of adults, parents of teens, preteens, young adults, talking about... Um, I don't want to ask them questions about, you know, are they thinking of harming themselves or are they addicted or are they losing control over their alcohol use or, or that kind of thing? Because if I do, I'll give them ideas. Could we take a strong step towards dispelling that notion today? Exactly. I'm so glad that you brought that up again, Linda. You know, we mentioned earlier that the experts, the doctors, they have studied this and they have said, you will not put the idea of committing suicide in someone's head. Mm -hmm. That is not something you have to worry about. And they have been absolutely crystal clear on that. Mm -hmm. And as far as I see you know, a lot of conversation about, oh, you know, if my, my kids will see this on social media or, or in the movies or in a book that they, they may learn a different way of using some drugs or they may discover, um, you know, a, a technique for hiding the fact that they're cutting. Mm. But they are only looking for those things because of the pain that they are already in. So the concern is not about mentioning things to them. The concern is in being available, being emotionally available in that non-judgmental way that we mm -hmm. talked about. Mm -hmm. to, to not worry about the words, to not worry about stigma, because if you have a child who is at risk for depression, addiction, or suicide, stigma is the least of your concerns. What you right. want to do is to help them heal and learn skills for managing their life. Judy, I know you're going to have a, a slightly different take on this because experiences are so different. So can you share your thoughts on that too? You know, 
There's such, and, and I see it across the board, not just with the teens and young adults. I see it in the military community all the time. The, you know, stigma around mental illness is, you know, while we're, we're making strides, it is so prevalent. You know, it is one of those things that, you know, mental and behavioral health, you feel like the world is viewing you in a negative way and that there's something wrong with you. And what that causes is a reluctance to get help. And you assume that nobody else can understand how you feel. Mm-hmm. And that's where that whole, um, you know, it, it becomes this top mind chatter, if you will, that if I get help, then people are going to think less of me. Or, you know, if somebody's bullying me online, oh, my gosh, something's wrong with me. Stigma creates discrimination, and it stops our kids and our young adults from reaching out when they want to. And I think Mm -hmm. it goes back to, you know, how do we prevent that? How do we get ahead of the stigma? You know, by talking, by sharing stories. I know every single time when my son shares his story, um, or even when Sandy's daughter has shared her story, without exception, other kids, the first thing they say is, oh, my gosh, finally someone who gets how I feel. You just led me perfectly to where I wanted to go. I was going to ask you, Jeffrey's perspective added to these dialogues, these talks, whatever you mentioned Mm -hmm. earlier, him going to high schools and speaking, I cannot imagine how connected kids must feel to him. And and in reverse, I imagine he feels that he has found his purpose in having gone through all this in order to help these other kids. Am I right? Absolutely. You know, when, um, you know, they always laugh and say the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. I'm, I'm somebody who truly believes in transparency and authenticity and everything I do. And my son is very similar. And when he came to us and said, you know, I want to help other kids see that it doesn't have to continue to be, they don't have to stay in this place of despair and hating life and not wanting to be here. Mm -hmm. And when he shares his story, he does it not because he wants people to know, he does it because he wants to provide hope. And what's fascinating to me is that he gets into the details. And Sandy, you can speak on this. I'm, a, I'm his mom, so I'm a little prejudiced, I know. But when he <laughs> rips off the Band-Aid and bears how he felt and the distress he was in and how he chose to cope with the pain he was feeling, mm-hmm. the entire room of kids, you can feel it relaxed, and all of a sudden, it becomes a conversation. He's not mm-hmm. talking to them anymore. They're asking questions. They're sharing what's going on in their thing, and it's, there is no stigma in that room. Mm-hmm. It, stories it's, there's no stigma. There's no judgment. Those are right. two big things, and, of course, they go hand in hand. Now, I've got mm-hmm. to ask, as the teachers are listening, are they learning also? Absolutely. A lot of times, 
and they're all crying. I mean, the teachers, when you hear mm-hmm. these kids talk, your heart breaks. And then all of a sudden, you see little breakthroughs. When they know they're not alone, it mm-hmm. takes them off the edge. Because now they see this child, and I think that's one of the reasons why our Dacium programs that we do, they mm-hmm. always have a parent and child piece. Because mm-hmm. when they can connect to a story, then they are willing to be open to getting help because they see the potential that they're going to feel better. Because and Judy, I want to interrupt for a second. Pain. I want to interrupt you for a second, Judy, because there's another piece right there that you mentioned. And I just want to point this out. As parents, it's easy to look at our kids and talk about how we need to fix them and that they need to accept they have a problem and all of that. Everything we're talking about for the kids is true for the parents, too. Mm-hmm. We have to be op- willing to be open and say, hey, we have a problem. Yes, my child has a problem, but I also do. We have to be willing to help them get help. We have to be willing to get help ourselves because we're going to need help through this process. So that mm-hmm. parent-child piece is the, the student connecting to Jeffrey's story, but also about parents connecting and seeing that they aren't alone and feeling that that support and connecting with you know the davis family story mm-hmm. but that mm-hmm. that's a big piece of it is that we as parents have to be willing to open our eyes and admit that there is a problem because it's scary when you don't know what to do about it of course it is and being a parent is hard enough and i i do want to make a mention you yeah. mentioned cutting earlier judy i think that some yeah. other signs cutting and bulimia um these can be hidden for quite some time oh, absolutely Go ahead. And they fall under addiction i mean right i look at addiction you know as as this broad scope because addiction is anything that you use to escape your reality and you, and you continue to need to use it. Mm-hmm. And you know, going back to the whole family dynamic thing and what Sandy was touching on is that when a child reaches out to get help, if you have a child that has depression or is in the throes of addiction or even just experimenting and escaping their problems, the entire family is affected. Mm-hmm. And the kids that get help where that help sticks and they actually get that relief they're looking for is when the entire family gets help. Because when someone is sick, just like if it was cancer or diabetes, whatever the illness is, it affects every member of the family and they become a part of that whole cycle. So if only one person steps out of that cycle, very easy for them to get pulled back into the dysfunction. So for our kids to get the relief they need and get the help they need, we, the entire family needs to say, okay, what is my piece in it and how can I, for me, it was about setting boundaries. My Mm -hmm. son knew how to manipulate me to get whatever he wanted and have me take over and do the tough stuff in his life better than anyone. And he'll tell you he did it. And in order for him to get healthy, I had to say, 
no, I will not let him take advantage of me anymore. That's hard. But that's a very hard thing to do. What do you tell an adult who has heard or read your book or understands a, a lecture? What do you tell a friend who comes to you or even acquaintance and as a parent says, I think things are off, but I, I'm not sure and I don't want to make it worse because I've heard First that a I thousand times. A copy of our book. <laughs> right. I mean, well, that's the second thing like I tell them to do. But, but I, I'm asking you that because I think sometimes the, the stigma, if you will, is not just, you know, I want to help, but it's, I don't want to imagine the worst when it isn't. Mm-hmm. Yes. I mean, does that make sense? It does, and you know, it's a it's a longer answer, so maybe we want to address that in the next section. Okay. Just because, just because we can. Okay. So then let's go to this question. Crisis. Good. Yeah. I'll bring that up, and after we go through the break. So here's a shorter one. Right. What are some of the critical points, just bullets, of allowing teens to talk openly? So one thing, Linda, is you need to create a safe space. It goes back to that no judgment, Mm -hmm. but no yelling, no blaming, simply listening, and then resisting the urge to fix it. Mm -hmm. You will know when you found that space because you will hear your child and see them start to open up. They will start to talk to you. It could be a tiny bit at first. It could take multiple times, but this is, you know, just remember, this is not personal. It's not about you. It doesn't matter if you think it's trivial because what you think is trivial can be monumental to your child. Just Mm -hmm. be be a safe, non-judgmental, quiet place where you will listen and help them along the way, not fix it for them, but listen to their ideas and make suggestions and be supportive. Critical mentioned, what you may think is small may not be to your child. Perfect. We are going to go on our final break and we are talking to Judy Davis and Sandy Fowler today about addiction, depression, suicide prevention with our military teens. And we'll be back after these short messages. Military Network Radio, and we'll be right back after these short messages. It's the Fitness Minute with fitness expert, Annette Hammond. To lose weight, we know that each day we need to burn more calories than we take in through eating, and exercise burns more calories. According to Discovery Health, a 150-pound person will burn about 60 calories while taking a one-hour nap. One hour of sitting and watching television burns about the same. But if that 150-pound person takes a one-hour brisk walk, then say goodbye to more than 250 calories. Cardio exercise like running, biking, swimming, and brisk walking are the best modes of exercise to burn the highest amount of calories and will get the endorphins flowing in your body. Those feel-good neurotransmitters boost your mood naturally. So use exercise to burn calories, lose weight, and to feel good. I'm Annette Hammond. To hear other fitness and weight loss tips, visit our website at AnnetteHammond.com. It's 
walked into a room on a mission to get something and totally forgot what you went in there for? I do it all the time, which makes me feel like a total civ head, as the Brits would say. Some might blame it on old age, but a recent study reported in the Quarterly Journal of Experimental Psychology suggests the simple act of passing through a doorway causes memory lapses. It appears the brain regards a doorway as an event boundary and effectively files away whatever you were thinking about as soon as you step through. What's a word for the feeling your thoughts are being stolen? Nucleptia. So, what's the solution? Try carrying an object that reminds you of the task. For example, if you go into another room to get a pair of scissors, carry the object you want to cut. It's marching Carolyn Davidson, and you can have fun challenging your words you never heard vocabulary with my free app, Too Funny for Words. Welcome back to Military Network Radio, serving the military, their families, and those who care about them. Together, we make a difference. Welcome back to Military Network Radio. We, Before the break, we're talking about a question we wanted to ask that was too long to go before the break. So we were talking about the levels of crisis. And I'd love to go over those. And then I want to step back into what we talked about at the very beginning, which is getting in front of the problem. I have this strong belief that I would rather people know about um, not only what to do in the crisis moment, but also how to use prevention instead of need for intervention. So let's go first to the levels of crisis. Who wants that one? One thing, you know, we know for a fact that early intervention saves lives. There's no doubt about it. Every bit of research. So the sooner you get to a child, the more likely that you will be able to help them and get them the relief that they are looking for and that they need. You know, long-term um recovery or if, you know, just better healthy coping skills. So early intervention does save lives. And what happens, though, with parents is that when one little thing happens, all of a sudden they go, oh, my gosh, my son or my daughter is, you know, at a critical level. And they instantly put them into um, a rehab center because they caught them smoking weed in the afternoon behind the school or something. Mm -hmm. And I just want to say when talking to my son, you know, talk about um, content creation and things, one of the things that he says and a lot of the other people that have um, some behavioral health stuff and things, they say that everything is not a crisis. Mm -hmm. So as parents, we need to just determine what level our child is truly at. And that, you know, kind of goes right to what you're talking about, Linda. It's like, is it critical? Is there a need for emergency medical care? Is it that your child's life is in danger right now? That's critical. That's get to an ER, call 911, you know, get them instantly into a medical facility. Mm-hmm. Then they're serious. It's like there's a problem. You, your child might have come home on multiple occasions um, doing different things. Your concern is increasing over time. Their behaviors are becoming more and more distressing. Then that seriousness is getting into a doctor, getting into a counselor. And that is, you know, important to do quickly. But where most kids are 
is in the early intervention stage. That's where we can make the biggest impact. And that is when they begin to use coping strategies that are unhealthy. And we can really and truly change that, like you're saying, by getting in front of it. And Sandy, you do a great job of talking about the important skills to do about getting in front of it. So I'm gonna throw it back to you, but it's all okay. of these things. Not every kid is critical, not every kid is serious. The majority end in that early intervention phase. And that's good news. That is good news. And it's so, great news because that early intervention phase is the same whether you see any issues with your child or not. It's really should be part of our parenting systems. So even if you don't think your child has any issues or is at risk, this is what is good to do anyway. And so what you want to do in, in that early intervention is go, okay, addiction, depression, suicide, these are often caused by our kids' lack of healthy coping skills, dealing with stress, with change, with the decisions they need to make, um, consequences to their actions, things that have happened to them beyond their control. So what you want to focus on is those core, core skills. Resiliency is a huge buzzword right now. I mean, Linda, do you not hear everyone talking about raising resilient kids? Well, I do. It is so overused. I, I think that sometimes we can use change as a catalyst for becoming stronger, which is, again, you know, resilience or post-traumatic growth. So I, I think that, you know, many times when we go through crises, you come out stronger on the other end if everyone's on the same mission. And boy, are military families good at missions and, and goals. And I, I think that that's a very important message of hope to also add to military families, because I think they're exceptionally good at drawing in. And the military community is good. Yeah. I agree with that. And, it, and I think it's a great thing to do to build on that. Mm -hmm. You know, we hear there's so much pride in the strength of the military community. Mm -hmm. What we want to do, though, is we want to make sure that that strength is not just the strength of being able to stand up in spite of what's happening around you and right. push down the feelings. Mm -hmm. What we want is the strength that comes from experience experiencing the feeling mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. of what's going on in your life and processing those and using some simple strategies for coping with stress. Mm -hmm. In fact, that's one of the things that you know we hand out oftentimes at our events is we have just a little wallet card for the high school and college kids that list off some stress-busting strategies. And they're not difficult things. It's things like listening to calming music, watching a comedy, mm -hmm. having a cup of tea, get some exercise, go to bed early without your devices, <laughs> right. deep breaths, unwind. And, and I know that people listen, they go, well, that's not a big deal. That's not anything huge. And that's good news too, because right. you don't need to learn something huge to deal with the stress in your life. But you mm -hmm. do need to be aware. We're going back again to this, this topic of awareness. You need mm -hmm. to be aware of the things that are causing stress and 
aware of whether your kids are learning the skills and strategies. So those are some simple things to deal with the stress. The next level of dealing with the stress is for them, for your kids, to feel like they have control. And that means, and that's where a lot of this resiliency comes in, mm-hmm. it, it just means that you have the skills to deal with life. Mm-hmm. So we need problem-solving skills. Helicopter mom, helicopter dad, let them make mistakes. Let them try things out. We're talked about conversation, communication. If they say, I've got this going on and I think I want to try this, don't tell them they're wrong and that they should do something else. If you see that, you know, it's, it's a, a total disaster with very serious consequences, ask some questions. Go, well, what do you think will happen if you do that? Let them learn to think it through. Ask leading questions. Think of yourself as a teacher, not mm-hmm. a problem solver. Very good mm-hmm. advice, because I think that you uncover a lot with questions. And now if you go to the now becoming more common um, views of coaches, you know, they ask mm-hmm. questions because your answers are inside you. It's just that no right. one has asked you those questions. And so I, I think you just made a very, very important point that I think people forget about. You know, it's not, are you in trouble? Yes, no. It's, you know, what is causing you to have this extra level of stress? I've noticed you're not eating or your friends aren't coming over anymore or you seem down. Is there something going on in your life? I mean, those are the kinds of things that take just a parent a little bit of skill to be able to do that. Mm-hmm. Right. And as parents, we don't, we don't go to that place first. At Mm-mm. least I didn't, especially in military life. I mean, I'm going to be the first person to say there's always some change going on. There's always some new situation that I'm trying to figure out how to deal with. Mm-hmm. So as a parent, slowing my life down enough to be able to have those long conversations and um, asking all those probing questions, it takes effort. And it's very easy to go, oh, they just need to, you know, they just need to roll on because we're a military family and they need to do that. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it, there's that catch-22 of, yes, there's no difference between a civilian team and a military team. They deal with much of the same issues. The difference is the filter. It's that military teams do so under more dis- duress. More and more duress. often. Right. And more often, exactly. So as military families, we really want to take that extra effort to be aware of what's going on with our kids and have that open line of communication and listen. Take the time to stop your life long enough to pay attention to what's going on in your kids. It's not always easy. I'll be the first to say that. But it's the thing that will get you in front of any crisis that could happen. I would like to, before we run out of time, ask you how people find out more about Dacium and also uh, about the various tools that you can provide through your organization. You can find a plethora of information online at dasium.net. That's D-A-S-I-U-M.net. And this year, 
it's a great year to start going there because we're in the process right now of doing a huge expansion for giving parents tools. We've been focused so far largely on the speaking engagements where colleges, military bases, high schools mm -hmm. bring us in to share the Davis's story. And now we're creating more um, online, more accessible tools for parents. So be sure to keep an eye out for that and to grab those that we'll have more available even just within the next month. Very, very important. That's Dasium, D-A-S-I-U-M dot net. We have just a minute and a half or so left. I want to make sure that you have the opportunity to share whatever else it is that you feel we may not have touched on today that is important for our listeners to know. Mm -hmm. One thing that we actually didn't touch on, but I just want to say is the importance of sharing stories. It removes stigma. It helps people feel supported. It lets people learn about resources. And, you know, we know firsthand Judy and Jeffrey sharing their story is what saved my daughter. Wow. That is a, a large, see, this, nothing happens by accident, I do not believe. And so you are all sharing this information today. I have no doubt will also save lives as well. So Judy Davis and Sandy Fowler, thank you for joining us today on Military Network Radio. Thanks, Thanks for, for having, having us, Linda. You, you bet. And um, the article will be published along with the show tonight on militarynetworkradio.com. And we are so glad that you have joined us. Come back next week, 10 o'clock on Tuesdays on militarynetworkradio.com. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you for tuning in today to Military Network Radio. You can find our show at our website, www.toginet.com forward slash Military Network Radio. Also, www.militarynetworkradio.com. And in iTunes under Military Network Radio. Join us next week when we bring you another program to enhance your